0: You're listening to TIP.
1: I used to get this all the time, like, so how do you unclog the toilet for your tenants in the middle of the night? I'm like, you do that for your tenants? Like I don't like I, I wouldn't I don't know if I would do that for myself in the middle of the night or for like my lady.
2: In this week's episode, I talk with Brandon Elliott all about section eight real estate investing, Burr investing, how credit works, and much, much more. Brandon is a successful real estate investor, entrepreneur, and podcast host. I really enjoyed talking about Section 8 housing because the first real estate property that I actually almost ever bought in my life, the first rental I went to go look at was a Section 8 property. And I ended up not purchasing it because I heard a lot of negative things about Section 8 from real estate investors on the internet. And so, in this episode, it was really interesting to really sit down and talk to somebody who focuses on Section Eight and somebody who loves it. So, hear the ins and outs of all about Section Eight housing, and then we also talk about burn investing and how credit works, which is always fascinating. So, let's get right to it. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Brandon Elliott. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Brandon Elliott. Brandon, welcome to the show.
1: What's up, Robert? I appreciate you having me, man. I'm excited to be here.
2: You have a lot of different things going on, but help me set the stage for everyone listening today by telling us a bit about yourself and a quick overview that we'll dive into deeper later about how you went from being on house arrest to a $5 million net worth.
1: Long story short, I'm from New Jersey originally. I live out in sunny San Diego, California. Fell in love with it out here. I grew up a screw up, got into drugs and stupid stuff, ended up having an explosion, burnt forty percent of my body. Uh, I was on fire, and so they induced me to, into a coma for a week, three surgeries later, a month in the hospital, I had to learn how to walk again, and you know court stuff pending. So it was just a crazy experience. Years later, I got house arrest, and I started improving my life and changing things around so. I got introduced to real estate from I was a good salesperson and, and door knocking for Kirby vacuum cleaners out here in in San Diego, and I got recruited into a real estate investment company that I got a little bit of education but a hell of a lot more motivation like I saw the the system in place and I saw how we were making a bigger impact in people's lives. I saw how everybody was getting paid well in the in the company, and it was just really inspiring so I started doing my own education with all the books, podcasts just like this and YouTube because I wasn't smart enough to know that there was mentors out there to help me. <laughs> and eventually, I ended up finding myself investing 3,000 miles away over in Ohio. I submitted 30-plus offers out here in 2 years in San Diego and uh, going against real investors that offer you know all cash, no contingencies, and close in 10 days, stuff that we do now It's kind of funny. I just couldn't get in, you know, out here. But Ohio, I was able to, I ended up, I was working restaurant jobs at the time. So I really didn't have that much money saved up. I had 35,000, but I had good credit and I was able to get creative. You know, when there's a will, there's a way. And I got creative and I figured out, okay, let's, you know, let's see if I can use my credit to actually be able to purchase properties and complete the remodels and And it turned into just a whole credit business over over the years. But we've purchased properties with credit cards. I've done all my remodels with credit cards. So I get a nice vacation at the end of each remodel. And I don't get screwed over by contractors, which is amazing because it's on a credit card. And we've done private money lending, hard money lending. We started a mastermind group called Credit Council Elite, which has helped people... In so many different ways, fix credit very quickly, build up millions in personal and business lines of credit, and then leveraging it into e com stores, real estate—you name it, bunch of fun stuff.
2: What was that first real estate company doing? Like, what kind of real estate were they into? Was it a private equity firm doing these big apartment buildings, or what did it look like? No,
1: no, it was—it was back in 2012. Uh, so it was NODs, um, notice of defaults, a lot of pre-foreclosure stuff back then. You know, right after the crash, several years later, people were just, you know, trying to get modifications and so forth. So they needed door knockers. They needed people, you know, we had these huge lists that everybody was going to foreclosure soon and and so forth and getting all these notices. So they gave me this list and I drove around knocking on doors trying to see if, hey, do you guys have a modification? Do you guys have something, a backup plan? Because it's going to auction. In a week from today. you know, And if not, we could be your backup plan and make it a win-win situation. So it doesn't go to auction, it doesn't mess up your credit, and you guys can actually get paid instead of just losing it.
2: What was that company doing if they didn't have any backup plan? How were they being the fix for them?
1: Uh, so we had multiple strategies because we had uh, agents as well on the team. So if they didn't want to actually sell it to us at a discount, then we could list it for them and try to sell it on the market or set them up with a modification. Uh, Another team section um, within the company could set them up with a modification so that they could stay longer if that was truly their goal. But back then, a lot of the modifications really weren't even working that that well. Uh, Or they were misguided, I feel like. A lot of people thought it was the The one and done, you know, simple trick that they needed, but there's a lot more to it.
2: When you started to invest yourself, why did you choose Ohio? I understand long distance. I'm a long distance investor myself. That's my probably number one strategy. So I totally understand why you chose to go long distance. But I mean, there's 49 other states other than California, (laughs) right? So why did you choose Ohio?
1: I feel like it's like a God thing, honestly, because I was trying out here for two years. Couldn't get like any offers accepted. I started getting more desperate and like started submitting on deals that weren't even really a deal. Like it really wouldn't work out number wise. But I was like, screw it. I, I just want to get started. Two years and I'm impatient. You know, like all millennials. I feel like. But needless to say, I started looking in other states. You know, like Arizona is right next door. So I looked there first, and then I started looking in Texas. And then I'm from New Jersey, so I checked out New Jersey. And just truth be told it was probably my lack of education, honestly, at the time. But instantly, I wasn't finding as I was doing the due diligence on the location and properties in the area, I couldn't find something that was like really cash flowing and that it truly made sense. But I got recommended by three different people all within the same week to check out Ohio. So when I did that, all of Ohio, I was you know doing my due diligence on and most of it cash flowed in many different ways. So I found this Uh, This lucrative opportunity that it had a job growth, population growth, and then something unique about it that actually turned me on to like, hey, I think this is the location. So I started building the relationships. But the unique part was really a famous Catholic university that they just announced the semester before that they didn't have enough housing available for the students. So juniors and seniors had to find off-campus housing. And that was like... You know that was like that that light bulb moment, and once I started doing more due diligence, I found out like there was a lot of bigger investors there, old guys that had a ton of properties in like their early nineties that like they just wanted to cash out, so they were creating more of a a buyer's opportunity for for me.
2: Did you end up going into student rentals because of that university needing housing?
1: It wasn't intentional, but it turned out to be that way. Like I'll I'll rent out to anybody. We have uh, a good amount of Section 8 as well. But yeah, we we have several students and yeah, it just turned out that way.
2: Have you decided to go into student rentals more after that experience or have you just kind of, again, like you said, take anybody that's qualified to rent your, your places?
1: Yeah, so I I screen very tough, just like a bank would. Uh, Just to, you know, I'd rather have a vacancy for a long time. Like some people are like, dang, I can't believe you're having a vacancy this long. But I'd rather have it that way so that I can get the cream of the crop instead of somebody that is going to potentially damage or just be a headache to me. So I've noticed that the students, as long as I screen well and then they almost find their replacements. And I give them incentives to do so, then it typically works out well. But I've also had some young guys that they kind of want to party a little bit. And I'm like, dang, how do I I let you guys slip through the cracks here? But they're all pretty respectful at the end of the day. Section eight, I'm starting to find out, is just more as long as I find the right, like good tenants that aren't going to trash the home and and they're respectful. Section eight has been kind of that bread and butter of like, I'm starting to like this because we can really get top dollar.
2: When you do the student rentals, do you put the parents on the lease as well as like a co signer?
1: Sometimes we do. Yeah, we've done this several times. If, if they don't have uh, their own income and like parents are paying for it, then definitely. If they're very young and this is like their first time living on their own, then yeah. Yeah, I, I just screen hard. So a lot of them will end up having to have their parents.
2: How have student rentals? performed over the last year or two with covid.
1: Yeah, that's a great question because the school in general like they did close up for a while. So there were several students that were, you know, going back home and so forth. And I I'm very blessed. You know, we we haven't had any vacancies or anything related to covid that restricted us or held us back. We've had one tenant that Tried playing some games a little bit during COVID of not paying rent and then kind of rubbing it in our face like, you know, you can't even evict me. But Ohio is different over there and they didn't realize so uneducated and, and we were able to evict them very quickly within like two weeks. So that was our first and only eviction thus far. Uh, we probably could have worked things out on the side, but we just wanted to set the standard of, you know, we're not going to tolerate any games
2: Talk to us a bit more about Section 8. Tell us first, for anybody that is listening that's never heard of Section 8, what exactly is it? And then we'll dive into it a little bit deeper.
1: Yeah. So Section 8 is government housing, basically subsidized housing that a landlord like myself can provide the home. And then the government will step in and help out uh, paying a good majority, or in some cases, the whole portion. Of whatever the tenant qualifies for. So the tenant would have to get qualified with the Section 8 uh, Housing Administration. And if they qualify and get approved, then depends on their income, how much they're making per month, the number of kids, and so forth, that will put them in either a poverty demographic or, or something that classifies them that they need assistance from the government. So in that case, I would be signing documents with the with section eight. Section eight comes through the house to inspect to make sure that it's up to code and and qualifies for a safe environment for the family. And and yeah, all three of us sign. It's basically like me, the tenant, and then section eight signing an agreement and they they pay like clockwork each and every month without any issues. And some of the tenants are paying like very, very little, you know, and, and it really makes it beneficial. We don't need to worry about it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com M-I Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
2: Section eight is interesting because I feel like it can be a bit divisive. I feel like some investors say they absolutely hate Section eight, they would never yeah. even consider it. And then there are right. some people who love it. You know, it sounds like you enjoy it yourself. There's, I know, I've talked to other people who really, really like it as well. So it's really yeah. interesting that there's this divide between some investors really like it and some don't. What yeah. have been some of the upsides for you for renting to Section eight?
1: Yeah. So, with Section 8, um, I grew up on Section 8, honestly. So, I I grew up getting a lot of... We grew up like American poor, right? Like, uh, There's all these other countries that their level of poor is like a whole different level. So, we are above and beyond blessed, but still grew up with the government stepping in and helping out and local churches and and, uh, my local school helping out as much as they could. But yeah, I mean, bottom line is that I think if you get the right tenant in there then they're going to treat the home as if it's theirs they're not going to trash it and this this goes across the board with any type of tenants right but you know if the the awesome part behind it is that the government is paying it each month so whether they work or not you know they're going to step in and really be more of the authority figure over these tenants because they do an annual inspection if they find out anything about the tenants that they're doing that are breaking the lease, they step in before I even do. So it's it's uh beneficial in that way that you don't need to worry like, hey, is this tenant actually gonna pay rent this month? You know, a good portion is getting paid by by section eight.
2: From my limited experience with section eight, I've seen that they actually pay pretty well for rental rates for Section Eight too. Has that been your experience?
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's where you can really get the premium amount for your area and it's all within their own algorithm of calculating, you know, what it's worth, but it's crazy like and each year you can ask for an increase. So, with some of my other tenants, I've always been like hesitant or scared like, hey, if I increase it this much, you know, are they going to start searching around? Are they going to look for something else? Section 8, you can ask for the increase it rarely messes with the the tenant. it can in some cases and they they might be you know they might need to pay more depending on their uh their monthly and annual income. but besides that, a lot of section eight also stay longer, which is in my case just been more of a you know something that we don't need to worry about if they stay for a long time, that's great.
2: What have been some of the downsides, if any, to section eight? I know you've mentioned the different inspections that Section Eight does. I've heard of some investors. Not that they're they're definitely not slumlords and they're providing a good place to live, but there are sometimes, like with FHA mortgages, you know, Section 8 could have requirements that are kind of nuanced and a little bit more of a pain in the butt than they are necessarily providing a specific place that's, you know, safe to live. So have you run into any issues with the inspections or any other downsides with Section Eight?
1: yeah you're so correct it's uh there's definitely some nitpicking that goes on because that's the inspector's role to like find something and even if if there if he constantly has nothing that he's criticizing the landlord's on, then it looks like he's not doing his job so it it's really a weird concept sometimes it's like the most ridiculous things but in all of our situations, all of our cases it's always been less than a couple hundred bucks, if any, to actually do whatever they say to make it qualified. And it's always been a great relationship that the guy has always just told us like, hey, after you install this or do this, then just take a picture of it, send it to me and I'll approve it and let Section 8 know. So it's really not that bad. If they ever nitpick about the stupidest things and really... Decided to be a pain and make it like thousands of dollars, and we didn't see that it was like justified, then I'd probably just say, No, I'm not going to do this. And then, you know, keep it moving outside of Section 8. But we do the burst strategy on all of our properties. So all of our properties are like fully remodeled and in pretty good condition uh, for the most part.
2: You touched on something that's important is that. If it ends up not working with Section 8, you could just rent it to a normal tenant. It's not like you're yeah. Section 8 or nothing, right? It's You can always yeah. rent it to a normal tenant as well. When you do go about Section 8 housing, if somebody's listening and they're interested in this strategy, talk to us a little bit about how it works in terms of like actually getting started. Do you have to designate a house as like Section 8 housing available or do somebody who is Section 8 approved already come to you and say, hey, I want to rent this place, but I am Section 8? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, first off, just I reached out to Section 8. I let them know that I'm a landlord, you know, uh, with many properties in the area. They asked me for the list of my vacant properties, and then they basically put my name and my number, my contact info, on a list of theirs of local landlords that have properties available. So, when People that are just approved for Section Eight and they're looking for a home, they'll see that list and yeah, they'll they'll give me a call and I always make them go through our application first just to make sure that they qualify with me and that it is a good fit. At the end of the day, everybody has to go through the same procedures, but then after they are pre-approved, then you know then it starts off with a uh, Section Eight making sure that their paperwork is good with them. And then the inspection comes through. And then about a week later, you know, we're good to go signing leases.
2: How do you screen Section 8 housing applicants or tenants? Because one of the most important things that I look for as a landlord is income, specifically three yeah. times the rent for a tenant. So that's probably not going to be the case with Section 8, right? If they make enough money to be three times the rent, they're probably not going to qualify for Section 8 housing. So how, what are you looking for in a Section 8 tenant application or just overall profile that you use to screen them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I screen everybody exactly the same. When it comes down to Section 8 and their income, it's going to be slightly different, but I still want to see consistency for at least three months. Ideally, I love to see consistency for at least a year. I do not like when I see people jumping from jobs. It's just inconsistent. It's unstable. And they could do that. They could break the lease in my opinion, you know, so I like to stay away from that. But if when it comes down to their income, I know section eight will pay a big portion of it. So I'm just concerned on, on their financial side of whatever they are responsible for. And I can check in with section eight to find out what that is. Then they make at least three times that amount, ideally more, but you know, three times the amount is what we're okay with.
2: You mentioned breaking a lease, and that's actually an interesting thing I want to talk about because, again, I have a very limited understanding or experience with Section 8, but I do I have looked into a little bit of research a little bit. I almost bought a, a house that was going to be Section 8. But from my understanding is that if somebody has a lease that's Section 8 for a year, if they try to break the lease early, they're not going to get assistance from Section 8 with their next house. So Section 8 is Correct. going to continue to pay you as the landlord for the lease of the length of that lease, whereas, and then if they go somewhere else, they technically could go live somewhere else, but they have to pay that rent themselves. Is that kind of what your experience has been? Is that accurate?
1: To a certain degree. So, if, like you mentioned in the first part of that, uh, if they break the lease, then they are no longer approved and good to go with Section Eight anymore. If they get evicted, they they lose their Section Eight voucher, so they're going to be screwed on rent. That they're going to have to figure it out on their own. So that's another very huge positive sign right there because they are living off of that. They're getting a huge handout and hookup. So they don't want to lose that. Therefore, they'll do many things to make sure that you know they're in good status. On the flip side of that though, if they did break the lease and they're not living there anymore, Section 8 won't pay. They're not going to that they're going to break the lease and that's it. So I would have to, at that point, go to sue that individual.
2: So if you had a house that could be rented, let's just keep everything else the same. If you had a tenant that applied section eight or just traditional tenant, which would you prefer?
1: I would actually prefer if it's apples to apples, good people and, uh, and no issues when it comes down to that, then I would 100% prefer section eight. And the the three reasons are that they typically stay longer, which is nice. I don't need to worry about vacancies. You know that's that's what kills us: vacancies. Um, also, the top dollar rent and getting that increase each and every year, and then also them just going above and beyond to make sure that they're in good status with Section Eight as well as me as the landlord, so that they don't. Get kicked out so that they don't lose their voucher.
2: As somebody who invests long distance, probably the number one yeah. question that I get asked is, "How do you manage your long distance properties? How are you doing
1: it?" <laughs> I used to get this all the time, like, "So how do you unclog the toilet for your tenants in the middle of the night?" I'm like, "You do that for your tenants? Like I don't like I I, I don't know if I would do that for myself in the middle of the night or for like my lady." You know, <laughs> like I I just think it's uh it's funny it comes down to systems. And I'm very, very blessed and thankful that uh, we started off doing this long distance 3000 miles away because I'm the type of person that very, I would say a little bit of controlling of like, you know, if if it's not getting done the right way, and it's close by, I would probably be over there on a regular basis and like stepping in getting more uh, hands on instead of like working on the business, I'd be working in the business. And that's, like that's not going to be beneficial. So um, thankfully, it was long distance, and it really just came down to the relationships—like relationships, relationships, relationships—and building them up. We have an amazing contractor that really is my everything over there. He does the full renovations. He does—he shows tenants' properties uh, after they're pre-approved. He handles keys maintenance issues, anything and everything. So he's my boots on ground and basically my property management, but also um, my contractor. And um, I, I've tried getting property management companies in the past over there. Nobody's going to care about your investment more than yourself. So this, this guy has been a gem for me and that secret like little sauce, that little ingredient that has blessed our business.
2: If anybody listening listened to an episode a couple weeks ago where I talked about my long distance investing, you're probably laughing like I am because this is literally almost exactly what I said. When Brandon mentioned about the toilets, I'm the exact same way is I own a duplex that I live in and I house hack. Even if the unit next to me broke, I don't know how to fix it. So it's not like I could do it anyway. I have to call a professional to go fix it for me. And so it's the same when I invest long distance, I call a professional that's able to do it for me and they go handle it. I think people make it more complex than it really has to be. What does your portfolio look like today? How many houses or properties or units do you have, I guess, across the board, but in Ohio specifically as well?
1: Yeah, so we are uh, in the low 20s right now. Um, We have over a dozen, like 15 over in Ohio. And then out here in San Diego, the last year and a half, two years, I guess, we've been taking more territory and focusing more out here. Um, just because we finally got to the certain experience or confidence or whatever you want to call it, education, that we're making the birth strategy work out here on million-dollar-plus properties. And at first, it was scary raising that money or utilizing our credit to be able to do so. But it's been so rewarding. We're doing Airbnb and a lot of our properties out here, but still... Having you know, after we renovate it, have no money into it with the cash out refinance, and out here it's like you should never bet on appreciation. But let me tell you, man, it's like it really increases out here in San Diego. One of our properties, a fourplex, uh, just last year in one year's time frame increased over three hundred thousand dollars, and it's like, and and it's already fully renovated. It's like we already got all of our money out, but now I can take out extra money from that. And it's a cash cow because of Airbnb. And it's just like, man, there's so many benefits to being local and and having fun with a different type of quality of a product at the end. It's not like uh, Ohio rental. It's it's a little bit classier, um, but it's nice. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. We're going to
2: dive into the burst strategy a bit deeper in a little bit. But before we do, I want to talk about credit. Then we'll tie credit together with the burst strategy. As part of your intro, you mentioned that you're a credit expert, you've done a bunch of stuff with credit, you have credit hacks. What exactly does that mean? And are you talking about credit as in credit card or mortgages or what kind of credit exactly does it mean?
1: Really, anything credit related. With that being said, just to make it simple, is uh, mostly credit cards. We look at credit as like a four step process. So it's educate, fix, build, and leverage in that order. So it's very important to be educated, you know, when you're jumping into this credit game of like, Uh, how the banks and lenders are judging us, how the bureaus are judging us, how to play the game of credit. Afterwards, we could all use a little bit of fixing because the bottom line is they weren't teaching it in school. And there's a lot of things that we've done mistakenly, or even just too much info on our credit profiles. And the credit bureaus are screwing up a lot of things as well. So there's a lot of mistakes on our credit profiles that need some fixing and cleaning. So we can show people within hours, up to 10 business days, how to remove and fix Stuff that have been holding them back for way too long. Bankruptcies removed in like 30 days. It's crazy. And then afterwards, building. Building is my favorite. That's what I am very passionate
2: about. Some people listening to the show may not know that business credit even exists. Most people are familiar with personal credit scores and credit reports, but not as many are familiar with business. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about the difference between business credit and personal credit, And then explain to us how we can actually build business credit.
1: So just break down business credit, if you're doing anything that is a business, treat it like a business. This is one of my biggest regrets when it comes down to credit as a whole. I didn't jump into... I, I leveraged my personal credit for a long time and build up huge credit lines on the personal side versus the business. Business, nine times out of 10 that credit won't actually show up on your personal. Therefore, it's separated and it's not going to fluctuate your score. It's not going to drop down you know, your, your score from having a high utilization and so forth. So um, even if you personally guarantee it, it you, know, you might get a hard inquiry, but uh, we can show you how to remove that quickly. And then it will never actually pop up on your, your personal side unless you're delinquent. Now, there are certain cards that are business, but will still actually pop up underneath your personal. So you want to be mindful of certain things like that, such as like the Business Discover card or Business uh, Capital One and so forth. You can get a lot more credit, like huge credit lines, and a lot more of it on the business side. So why not?
2: What? Are you using it for? What kind of business loans are you getting? What, kind, what types of products are they? And do you have to have a ton of revenue to qualify? Like, How are you getting qualified for these? Walk us yeah. through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's a great, it's a great question. Um, so there's different ways that the banks will give you funding and how they judge you. You can either personally guarantee everything, meaning your personal FICO score. You can give a ton of documents uh, meaning you have great revenue coming in, you have great contracts, you have great tax returns that you can show, or you can do uh, collateral. Collateral meaning you have other assets that you, or life insurance or something that you could put in exchange to be able to get you these fundings as a, as a secured loan.
2: What is a personal line of credit and what are the benefits of it? How does it differ from a business line of credit?
1: Yeah. So personal line of credit is just going to show up underneath your personal credit profile. So it shows up as a revolving account, uh, meaning that you know there's a monthly payment due each month. They're going to calculate that into your debt to income ratio if you are going to get a mortgage or really any type of financing similar to auto loans and so forth.
2: Let's combine these credit card strategies to what you're doing in real estate First, explain to us what the BRRRR strategy is and then tell us how you're leveraging credit cards and how people using, listening to the show might be able to use credit cards to do the same thing.
1: Oh yeah. So I fell in love with the BRRRR strategy first off. So if anybody out there that doesn't know this, definitely dive into this stuff because it can be life-changing. But the BRRRR strategy, it's, it's B and then 4R. So buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat. So what that looks like is we're buying a fully distressed property, uh, beat up from the feet up. Uh, afterwards we're doing the full renovation on it, making it brand new again, making it look sexy in the neighborhood. At that point, it's, it's easy to get a lot of interest in the property because it's brand new and it looks good in the neighborhood, but getting a well qualified tenant is the key to that, right? After it's rented out and it's doing well, then you can take it back to a bank and you can get a cash out refinance. So making sure that you qualify for a personal or a business mortgage, or there's investment type of lending out there that will, will work with you uh, based on the asset itself, the numbers, the, the property. Um, however, you will pay a higher premium when it comes down to the interest rates. If the numbers make sense, the numbers make sense. So I want to overthink that part. But once you get It's really kind of like a fix and flip, except instead of just a one time payout and that's like a high paying job, and then you got to move on to the next, you actually keep the property. And the whole goal with this is just to have no or little money actually remaining left out of your pocket into the deal. So ideally, you know, if you bought it for $50,000, you put $20,000 into it, it's worth $100,000, you get a uh, a new mortgage at seventy thousand you only had seventy thousand into it. You have no money left into it, and now you have a small monthly mortgage, let's say five hundred dollars uh but in fact, it rents out for a thousand. Now you get the cash flow that couple hundred dollars uh obviously minus your you know vacancies uh capital expenditures uh maintenance insurance, all that fun stuff. but doing this process and repeating it that's the last step. That's where you'll get that financial freedom. You'll get that generational wealth. You'll be able to compound on so many different areas of real estate that has that mailbox money that has literally been able to give us the freedom over the years and life-changing experience.
2: How are you leveraging credit cards to do
3: this?
1: Yeah. So we've, um, we've purchased properties with credit cards and we've completed all of our remodels with credit cards. Also have done hard money lending and private money lending with our credit into real estate for other partners.
2: How do you purchase a property? How do you buy a house on a credit card?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's many different ways, honestly. Uh, you can use plastic.com. Uh, that's a technique. Uh, there's small fees involved with that, but they will wire it right into escrow. Otherwise, you can also we've done manufacturer spending to be able to liquidate cash from our credit cards. And once the cash is in our bank, then we can use it however which way we want. So we'll just wire it into escrow. We've had students utilize uh, merchant accounts, and there's right ways to do this and wrong ways to do it. The whole uh, there's a lot of things with credit that we teach that there's there's small amount of ways to do it correctly. There's many ways to mess it up that could actually hurt you and damage your bank relationships or get your accounts closed and so forth. So that's why. I'm a very big advocate of like giving out free guidance and stuff like that. And, and, uh, motivation behind it, it can be very life-changing and and amazing, but there's, there's so many ways that you could screw it up. So I encourage you don't just wing it and, and try to do it on your own, like really get educated on it. Um, but yeah, we've had people, uh, utilize merchant accounts and get, you know, uh, 0% interest credit cards, swipe it on their card and then be able to wire it into escrow.
2: The plastic website you mentioned, is that ending with a Q instead of a C?
1: It ends with a Q, yes.
2: Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I always wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So Brandon, what question do you have for me?
1: That's so good. I love it. What are you doing with your credit?
2: So I'm not doing much in terms of like creative stuff. I have about... Eight credit cards or so. I think I have like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in uh, available credit to me. I don't have any credit card balances. Never paid any interest or anything like that. So yeah, I think I have about eight credit cards or so. I have a couple business credit cards because of the uh, businesses I have. But yeah, about one hundred and fifty thousand or so in available credit. But I've never done anything creative really in terms of like utilizing it for real estate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I've more or less just used it for like sign-up bonuses, but only if like I let's just say I had my auto insurance coming up. And I knew that was going to be $1,000. And I knew yeah. I only needed to spend $1,000 to get a $500 bonus or something on a credit card. I would do that. But that was about the extent to how creative I've gotten with credit cards.
1: Yeah, I love it. And that's a nationwide thing. A lot of people pay more in cash or just take advantage of some of the sign up bonuses. So it's uh, it's very common to hear. I would just challenge everybody that's listening and, and even possibly yourself, Robert, that... When you're educated on the credit and all the possibilities behind it, it's really endless. If, if money was ever the issue in your business or your life of, you know, I need more of it so that I can do this, 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 you could really flip that script pretty easily by focusing on real estate or focusing on credit and then whatever avenue. I know we're all very passionate about real estate. It's changed our lives, but credit can help you know exponentially take it to the next level.
2: Yeah, I have to admit, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think it's really interesting. It, I'm super fascinated by it. I'm going to definitely do some research. Yeah. I'm not sure yet how I feel about it yet. I got I to gotta do a little more digging and, and get educated myself because I don't think I could formulate an opinion and say whether it's good or bad before I know enough about it. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's been really interesting to hear from you and all your different strategies that you got going on. And anybody that's interested, do, do your own research and check it out and yeah. see what your thoughts are. For anybody that wants to look into you a little bit more and, and connect with you, where's the best place for them to find them?
1: Once again, I, I appreciate you so much for sharing your platform with me. Yeah, I just had a great time today. So if you wanted to connect with me for you know on Instagram, it's Brandon Elliott Investments. Otherwise, facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor.
2: I'll be sure to put a link to Brandon's resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Brandon, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, appreciate it,
2: Robert. Have fun today, guys. Stay blessed. Alright, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday we study billionaires and the financial markets.